0: Well, as I was thinking about uh, the sermon today, I thought it would be kind of interesting to pick up on some of the verses that talk about things which are new. And uh, I was going to relate this to kind of the obvious, you know, the idea that Jesus, who's the Messiah, the Word made flesh, you know, He comes to us as a baby, the incarnation. That's uh, the Bible that talks about the Word of God The very Word becoming flesh, not the Word of God, but the Word becoming flesh, the Logos. And that He comes, and He comes to us as the Messiah, and we've mentioned this already, kind of this vulnerable situation. And God is the creator of all things. He could have chosen to come in any particular manner that He wanted. The second coming, for example, we read about in Revelation, is going to be big and loud, and there's going to be no doubt about it when it starts to happen. But the first incarnation was very quiet, and it was very humble. Uh, the only real uh, big flash we see in it is when the shepherds uh, hear the angels sing. And, and even them, they're singing to the lowest level of society. And in addition, we also have other traditions of the new that are around Christmas. Uh, for example, we give gifts uh, during Christmas. Uh, you know, most times, those are things that are new. And uh, of course, that kind of reflects the Magi giving gifts uh, to the Christ child. And the Magi, by the way, just for those of you who aren't, uh, don't know, they actually came quite a bit later, uh, about, probably about two years after Christ was born. Uh, we always have the nativity scene with them showing up too. And that, that's, that's just kind of there for the sake of uh, telling the story and art. And we don't even know if there was just three of them. That's kind of tradition based on those three gifts. There could have been more. There could have been less. Um, I've, always, I've mentioned this quite often. You know, Cologne claims that they have the bones of the three wise men as their relic in the cathedral there. No, they don't. We don't even know where these guys came from. And the scripture says they just disappeared back into the east. What happened was the the, uh, Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, she went on a trip to the Holy Land after Constantine uh, declared that he was going to support Christianity. And when the emperor's mom wants to find stuff, you find stuff for her. And when she's like, where were these guys buried? They kind of looked around and went, right there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so anyways, but that's kind of chasing a rabbit. And then one of the big areas of new that you find in the scripture comes from the idea of redefinition. A lot of the passages in the scripture have the idea of new being coupled with the idea of being redefined. This is particularly in the, in the New Testament. Because uh, what you find throughout Christianity is that it redefines things all the time. And one reason why I'm bringing this up is because some people, and I respect their opinions, but they have an issue sometimes with Christmas, some of the things around Christmas, the Christmas tree, for example, because they'll say that this is coming from a, a pagan root. And there is some historical fact to that truth, that, that comes that there are some traditions that can be traced back that are around either before Christianity or they were in place before Christianity influenced them. But one of the things about Christianity that people often forget is that Christianity redefines things. It's just part of what it does. Christianity redefined marriage. The concept of marriage was around before Christ. But Christianity comes in and redefines marriage. It says that marriage is now, a, among Christians, an illustration of Christ's love for the church, the church's love for Christ, A husband is to love his wife self-sacrificially the way that Christ loved the church. A woman is to love and respect her husband in the same way that we would expect the church to love and respect Christ. So it's a complete redefinition of an idea that had already been there. Baptism is a redefinition. In in the, the Jewish tradition... Baptism was something you did, ceremonially cleansed. If you came into contact with something that made you unclean, be it death or a woman after her uh, time of the month, they would go through a time of of cleansing, ceremonial cleansing. When Jesus was baptized, he wasn't baptized in the sense that we think about baptism. He was baptized in the sense of preparing himself, putting himself into submission unto the plan of God, essentially his own plan, putting himself into submission into that. And being being ceremonially cleansed happened often in Judaism, but Christianity redefines that and talks about it being a, a symbol of unity, death to self, symbol of unity with Christ, and we call it baptism. And so, there's a difference; it's a redefinition, and you see this a lot in the Scripture. So, as I was looking for the concept of new about ten days ago when I started working on this, I decided to go from Genesis and just kind of go through the Bible. And I really wasn't, I didn't know what I was expecting to find. I was just trying to see what was in the Bible. And what was interesting is like I went upon this little journey, this kind of rabbit trail that I wasn't expecting. Because while the idea of new doesn't really change, what is emphasized as new changes. As you go from Genesis all the way through Revelation, what is emphasized in the Bible, you just see it, it changes. It changes. And so we're going to look at the scriptures, and I'm not going to give a lot of commentary today because I'm still actually kind of working on this thought. It's it's one of these things that, again, wasn't really expecting to find. Not entirely sure what to make of the whole thing. I have some ideas. There's a lot you could make of this. If you're you're going to be part of IBCD for the next year or two, I suspect you'll probably find me coming back around to this uh, because the idea is still kicking around in my head. It's not, it's not, so today what I'm going to be talking about is just kind of what I found in there. And I'll give some of my interpretations of it, but these are just my interpretations of it because, as you probably know, the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us everything that it means. What I mean by that is like when you read the Old Testament, particularly the histories like Genesis and, and Exodus and all that, something will happen and there's no explanation given to it. it just, it's just there. And it's really up to you and to the people reading it to, to, to interpret, well, what does that mean? This is why you have this rabbinic tradition of the rabbis constantly going back over the Scripture and, and digging into it. And like, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Because particularly in the historic, historic aspect that's given to us, it'll just say something and not really say what, what that's about. A good example that people have questions about, if you look in Exodus chapter 4... There's a story where Moses is, is sent to go and free the people from Egypt. And the Lord sends him to go. And then it says, On the way to Egypt, the Lord tried to kill Moses. And you said, What? And then Moses' wife, Zipporah, circumcises their son, and dabs Moses' feet with the, the blood, and then it seems like everything's fine. There's no explanation given to it. Like, what's going on there? What's God doing? How are we supposed to understand that? None of that's given. Which has led to this rabbinic tradition, you know, where they talk about, talk about, talk about this. What is this about? What is this about? What is this about? So let's go through this. The first concept of new, when you look into the Bible, God is mostly expressing his blessing to humanity through material things needed for life. This is how it kind of starts out new. Food, wine, other produce of the field— and I won't necessarily read every verse that we go through, but I'll read most of them. So here's some examples. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's riches. This is in Genesis. The abundance of grain and new wine. Leviticus, again, early in the Old Testament. Count up 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. So the newness is, is mostly seen in material things that we receive and are also to give to God in, uh, in sacrifice. He will love you. Deuteronomy's uh, and the new and all these different aspects of life, but still, it's kind of like the, the production aspect. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your wombs, the children, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and oil, the calves of your herd, you know, the little, little calves, the lambs of your flock, and the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. So this is how it begins. You see, newness really focused on sort of the material blessings of life, the things you need to live. Then the next new comes up. This is one that we very rarely talk about. I've never heard any sermon on it. I've never heard anyone really talk about it. And it's this idea of the new moon. Rosh Hadosh is the name of, the, of this festival that was celebrated by the Israelis back in the time, Israelites. And one reason why they followed the new moon is because they had a lunar calendar. So they, didn't, they had a lunar calendar. The beginning of every month was the new moon. I've often wondered why we don't talk about this very much, because it's prevalent in the Old Testament, as mentioned a few times in the New Testament. I think one reason why we don't talk about it very much is it sounds a little too pagany for us. A little too much like pagan worship thing going on, because we don't know what to make of it. But it's talked about over and over again. Here's some examples. Again, early numbers. Uh, with each bull, there is to be a drink offering and half a hin of wine. With the ram a third of a hen, and with each lamb a quarter of a hen. This is the monthly burnt offering to be made at each new moon during the year. First Samuel, this is when David is escaping from Saul, and there's this talk about, well, he'll notice this, you're not at this feast. It says, So David hid in the field, and when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. And then in Ezra, this is after the temple had been rebuilt after the return from Babylon. And so all these festivals were reinstated. It says, Then in accordance to what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. So I found that kind of interesting how often this is mentioned and how little we talk about it, and frankly, how little I know about it. It's just not really something that's on our Christian radar very much. Then something you see often happens within the Bible, again, is that God would, when he's brought out a person who was going to do something in a special, kind of a special task, he would often give them a new name. Uh, Example is Abraham. He says, no longer will you be called Abram. You're going to be called Abraham. For I've made you the father of many nations. He does the same thing with his wife, Sarai. He says, no longer are you going to be Sarai. As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer going to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. He also does this for Jacob. Jacob becomes known as Israel. And again, that's one of those ones that we more often still think of him as Jacob. And I think sometimes it's a surprise to people that the name Israel is because Jacob was renamed Israel. That's why it's the nation of Israel. And Jesus, of course, does this most famously with Peter. And I think like Jacob, in the, in the time of the early church, Peter was still mostly known as Simon. Because if you read the Gospels, they'll often say, Simon, who is also known as Peter? As if they kind of need to remind the readers that Simon is also known as Peter. And now we think of Peter as Peter. And Simon is kind of a very secondary way that we think of him. And Jesus replied, After Peter recognized Jesus was the Messiah and said so, Jesus says, "Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it." So this is one of these. This is where you start to see things begin to take on kind of a new uh, way of things begin to 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 change in the Bible. It goes from this material to more of these kind of different ways of understanding newness. This is, a, this is an interesting one. This is another one of those ones that doesn't have any context to it. When the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom became known as Israel. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. A cloak was taken, and it says this. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. Jeroboam would eventually become a king. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Why new cloak? Why not just any cloak? Why is that? And, and these details aren't in there by accident. There's a reason why it's in there. Why a new cloak? When you think about what newness kind of represents in general, but this is one of those, there's no real explanation around it. It just is. He took a new cloak, and you got to remember, back in the day, you didn't go and buy clothes at Primark and stuff like that. You had to, these things were handmade from beginning to end. They sheared the sheep. They made, the, made the, th- the wool. They put that thing together. They wove it. They dyed it. It was a big deal They tear up a new cloak. Germany has this, uh, uh, well, a lot of Europe has this story about St. Martin, right? on Riding on the horse, saw a poor guy and cut his cloak in half and gave it to him. They made a saint out of the dude for that. I mean, if you're going to be a saint, you'd think, give him the whole cloak, right? But that was a precious thing. Some of you are like, what's he going off on now? But the idea that, you know, it was such a precious thing that you could even just give half your cloak. And you're considered a saint. So this guy took a new cloak, tore it into 12 pieces as a symbol of this reordering of the kingdom. Interesting. Then we get to Psalms. Psalms is where... You see, newness almost always related to worship. Especially this phrase, I'm going to sing a new song. It wasn't coined by U2. It was actually, he took that, they took that from, from, uh, from Psalms. It says this several times. Sing him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. And then, this idea of sing the new song, you find it also in some of the prophets. This isn't, these aren't the only times you find it, these are just little samples. Isaiah, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all that live in it. Let the desert and its towns raise its voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. So as again, there's no explanation around it. Why a new song? What is it about the new song? What is it trying to say when it comes to worship? That we are to sing to the Lord a new song. There's not a phrase ever, sing to the Lord an old song. And you might kind of laugh about that, but, you know, think about tradition, right? Tradition would say, sing to the Lord the traditional song. That's never in there. Why? Why? Then the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus often refers to his teachings as something new. And when he says new, sorry, the type is tiny, but he says something new, it's not in the sense that it has no connection to the old, but it's new in its perspective. And the effect is to have a fresh life brought to faith. Here's some of the the ones that you'll surely will recognize No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, it's interesting, in Luke, he continues to say, But most people will still prefer the old. So he's bringing something new, but he recognizes, but most people will still want to fall back on what they already know, which essentially Mark, Matthew doesn't talk about that. Then again, Matthew, he says, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house that brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So you bring out the new, and it's connected to those things, of the traditions of the past. So like Christianity doesn't form in a vacuum. It comes out of the traditions of Judaism. And then, of course, uh, one of the ones we talk about all the time here at IBCD, a new command I give you, a new command, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. When he talks about when, uh, when the Apostle Paul is writing about the Lord's Supper, he says in the same way, after supper, he, being Jesus, took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new contract or the new agreement in my blood. Whenever you drink of this, remember me. And then I didn't get it on a slide. I just forgot when I put it together. One of the uh, uh, interesting little details that's similar to the new cloak being pointed out. When Jesus was crucified, he was buried in a new tomb. And it's very much pointed out. It's a new tomb. Why? Because the way tombs used to work back in the day, it wasn't like you got put in there and you just stayed in there. You would be put into the tomb till the body, the flesh, rotted off. Kind of gross, but that's how it is. And then once the flesh had rotted off, they would take the bones, they would put it in a much smaller box called an ossuary. And those ossuaries would then be put in a different place where they'd just kind of be stacked up. They found, archaeologists have found, little caves that are just stacked with ossuaries. If you go to Israel, you can still see them. There's this, there's this Jewish... Uh, Graveyard that's right across from Jerusalem, right across from where the Mount of Olives, you actually go down through it if you're heading to Jerusalem. And there's a cave there that has iron bars now because they don't want people going in there. And in the cave, you see stacked in there are all these bone boxes, ossuaries. Jesus says Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. No explanation. And then as you go further and further into the New Testament, this newness starts to become much more personal. And it talks about our lives being redefined by Christ, the connection that we have with Christ, breaking the bonds of the old things which have defined us. And this is where the Apostle Paul talks about baptism in a whole different way, a whole renewed way. He says this in Romans chapter 6, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is a new concept for them. Back in the day, Jewish baptism or ceremonial cleansing was to make yourself pure in order to participate in feasts or to go to the temple, or if you'd come in contact with a dead body, you did this in order to become clean again. The idea of being baptized into someone else's experience is unique. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, he kind of connects it in 1 Corinthians. And I didn't write it down. It's just kind of coming back to my head. He connects it when he says something about the the people coming out of Egypt. He says, the people that that were following Moses, they were baptized into Moses when they went through the sea. And I remember thinking, that's kind of a strange thing. What's he talking about there? And what Paul is talking about is that as Moses went into the, the divided sea, he was walking into what looked like certain death. And the people followed Moses into this thing that looked like certain death. I mean, could you imagine walking through an ocean? You have these, you know, first of all, the idea that it's, it's split is freaking you out. And you have these walls of water. And Moses says, let's go. The only thing that pushed them through is the Egyptian army was right behind him. Or otherwise, I'm sure the scripture says, and behold, they saith, no. <laughs> you know? But they go, they go into what looks like certain death. And they come out on the other side and they're free. And Paul says in that they were baptized into Moses. They joined him, they followed him into this experience that looked like death. But on the other side of it came life. And this is how he connects this. He says, you know, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. We follow him. We were therefore buried with him. We follow him into what looks like death, death to self. Buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may, me too, may live a new life. This is a whole redefinition. In Romans 7, 6. But now by dying to what what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, you see how it's changing as you go from Genesis, as you go through the scriptures, as you go through Psalms, and you get into the New Testament? It really, the whole idea of what is new changes. And this is where the emphasis is as you go through the Bible. And this new life is not just the message to the world, but it's also how we to live now. It's not just what, what we're looking for in the great by and by. We live it now in expectation of this future. And so he says, uh, again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 6, he says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Did you know that you are considered competent as ministers of a new covenant? There's actually this Baptist, uh, we don't talk about it very much, but there's this Baptist uh, doctrine called the competency of the believer. This is why we, we, we believe you don't need to have a priest that stands between you and God. You are competent to pray. You are competent to read the Bible. You are competent to tell others about Christ. You have this competency of the believer. He says, He is made as competent as ministers of a new covenant. Again, the the new promise. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And, And Paul is very careful to say, he doesn't believe that the Old Testament law was evil, but that the law of Moses exposed us to the fact of our sinfulness, and by recognizing our sinfulness and yet still continuing to indulge in that sinful behavior, we died. Our spirit died. That's what it means when he talks about the letter killed. He talks about it in many other places. Being exposed, by realizing his place of sin, it then killed him because his human nature couldn't walk away from it. But in Christ, we have been given that forgiveness through the cross of Christ, his death upon the cross. His victory over sin and death was given to us through the resurrection. It was exposed to us through the resurrection. So we have this new way, the Spirit. And again, it goes on another famous passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're not stuck in that old way anymore. Sometimes you might feel like it, because there's definitely an aspect within our faith of already, but not yet. You are already considered righteous if you're a believer because of what Christ has done. Are you fully, from head to toe, within your very DNA, a righteous person? Maybe some of you think you are, but none of us are. We're given the credit for that. We will become righteous, and we'll get to that point, because actually the Bible continues this newness, and we'll get to that point. it's a fascinating little journey, I find, anyways. But I'm kind of a geek about this sort of thing. Ephesians, it says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Again, this idea of it starts to go from being you know, material things to worship to how do you live. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That's what I mean by this idea that by being exposed to sin, it doesn't necessarily mean that, well, now that I understand that I'm going to turn away from it. Now our human nature goes, that's sin? Hmm. And we start to get drawn to it. Our deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to, put off the, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Interesting. Peter says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some people make fun of the idea of being born again. They kind of like, oh, you're one of those born-againers. And especially in Europe, I find people make fun of the idea of being born again. And it's too bad because obviously, what this meant by being born again has been completely lost somewhere along the way. You must be born again. Jesus tells us to Nicodemus, you must be born again because that old thing can't be redeemed. It's the old wine skin. You can't put something new, a new teaching, but not change the way you live. It'll just end up going nowhere. You have to be born again. You have to have a renewal of your heart and mind. Now, many of you have been believers for a while, and you know that that renewal isn't a one-time thing. You have to kind of come back and revisit that and revisit that and revisit that. But there's that new that we have in this place. And then in Revelation, all these concepts of the new that you progress through— begin to come together, and they come back together. You've heard me often say that in the end, uh, when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, in the end, you're back at the beginning. In a sense that in the end, the way Revelation describes our way of life will be very much like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were very in the very presence of God. The way it's described in Genesis is God walked in the garden with them. In, the, in Revelation, it's the same way, except instead of a garden, it's a city but we dwell in the presence of God. And you see a lot of these ideas of the new begin to fold back in. And I didn't put much around this slide for a reason, because to me, this is very much an unformed idea. I haven't really got this thing worked out yet. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Again, not a lot of explanation. What does he mean by the hidden manna? Well, the manna is what we know. What we know about the manna, that's how God sustained the people when they're in the desert. So there's this idea, there's a, a place of sustenance. But this is the one I find most fascinating. I will also give them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And this idea in Revelation, you see, folding back into it is this idea of the new name that God would give to people when they were called to do something different, called into A new place of of mission for him. And this one, for whatever reason, stuck around in my head. And I've been thinking about it. And this is my interpretation of it. I think basically what it's saying is, you know, those new names that were given. When Simon becomes Peter. When Jacob becomes Israel. When Abram becomes Abraham. What Jesus is saying, especially with Peter, is that your character is different than what your name says. Your character is different than what other people say. They call you Simon. Which means like a reed blowing in the wind but I see you as a rock. I'm going to call you Peter. And I think part of what this is saying here is that when we finally are in the presence of God, that new name is saying, this is who you really are. This is who you really are. Without the influence of sin that you commit, and just as importantly, and sometimes we don't think about it very much, but also without the influence of sin that other people commit, that influences your life. Because we are, even if you are the most sinless person in your own personal conduct in the world, you're still surrounded by a world that has been shaped by sin. Shaped by people who are sinners. It's in our entertainment. It's in our politics. It's in everything we have and do. Unfortunately, it's also in our churches. And I don't think any of us really have any concept of the type of person we would be if we were not ourselves drawn to sin, and if we were not placed into, like a tea bag into the water, like just immersed into a sinful world. And I think at the end we do know, that's that stone, it's a white stone, it's pure. He's saying, this is who you are in that purity of who you are. That's my interpretation of that one. That's the only interpretation you're going to get from me, because the others are still rolling around in my head. Whoops, I need to go back one. There we go. To him who overcomes, then he uses this other metaphor of the temple, like we are the temple of God. To him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. He's not talking about a building here. He's talking about how the people form the temple. Like we say, the church isn't this building. The church is the people. Because actually that's what the word means, Ecclesia It means a group of people called out for a specific task. I will uh, see. Never give me the leave it. I will write on him, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. So it's, it's, that, Jesus is saying that now. So we'll also we'll have the name given to us, but we'll also have the name of Christ on us. And then they sang a new song. Well, we've heard that phrase, right? They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God and from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it all comes together then with this, phrase, with this passage out of Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I'll do a sermon sometime as to what that means, because it's kind of a fascinating concept. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, the new of the redefinition of what it even means to be married, we see that now being reflected again. The church's love for Christ, Christ's love for the church. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Very similar to what we see in Genesis, except it's in a different context now. We're not naive like Adam and Eve were. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And that's where the Bible concludes this journey of the new. And I don't really, other than a few things that I've shared with you tonight today, I don't really have a lot of deep conclusions from all this, except I find this it's something that you know, is going to be kind of kicking around in my head because it's there for a reason. And I don't know all the theology behind it because, like I said, I just kind of discovered this about 10 days ago. That's why I find the Bible such a fascinating book. I've been studying it for over 30 years, and I'm still surprised by it. Did any of you have this idea? Did any of you already know all this? Man, good. (laughs) But I do know this, and this is just something that we know from from our faith, that if we want to have the new, one thing that is all throughout it is that we have to be willing to seek it out. And usually what it means by willing to seek it out is we have to be willing to take a good look at ourselves and say, am I satisfied with the old that I am, or do I want something different? Do I want something new? And this is really the, the battle of sin. Am I satisfied with who I am, or do I want the new that Christ offers? Do I trust him that what he has to offer is better than what I already have? And this is a deeper question than I think a lot of us realize, because I think many of us, especially, in this, I think this becomes the trap of living in a fairly affluent society, when we have to ask the question, do I trust that what God has for me is better than what I already have?" Because a lot of times what we assume God wants for us is less than what we have. We go, "If, if I follow Jesus, man, I'm going to have to write a bigger, bigger tithe-giving check. If I'm really going to follow Jesus, I might have to give up my career goals and do something that's going to make less money. Or I might have to go live someplace that's less comfortable. And, and that we let that fear stand in the way of really saying, okay, do I want to trust God with this? And this is why, and I'm going to close this passage, this is one reason why the Apostle Paul kept going back to this, because he understood what it meant to give up something to follow Christ. Apostle Paul gave up a lot to follow Christ. But he stuck with it, and he encouraged people to stick with it. And he said, therefore, I urge you, brothers and my sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You are involved in it. You die to self, giving it up. That is your spiritual act of worship. He's not saying you crawl on an altar and stab yourself. Because we do. Christianity has a history. You kind of laugh about that. But Christianity has a history of people actually harming their bodies because they take something out out of context in order to please God. And then he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed with the renewing of your mind. Interesting. Not the renewing of your heart, not the renewing of your feelings, not the renewing of your emotions, the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve of what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You can't know what the will of God is if your mind is not attuned to the will of God. That's what he's talking about, by the renewing of it. You can't be in the the system of the world and still be in the system of God at the same time. You can recognize the system of the world. When I say by the world, I mean that kind of the sinful systems of things, the powers and principalities. You can recognize it. You can know how it works, but you can't be bought into it and at the same time be following Christ. And that's a challenge for some people to even agree with that. But as we go into this new year, though, I want to encourage us to live as a people that have been renewed by Christ. That our lives would reflect it. Because if we're not living as renewed, then we're just living as a people that have a particular philosophy about a story that took place 2,000 years ago that really doesn't change how we live. It's just something we celebrate a couple times a year, Christmas and Easter. If we really want to be a renewed people, then we have to be willing to let ourselves go into that place of sacrifice and trust him, death to self, to be alive in Christ and to live as renewed. So that was the little journey of newness. And uh, I know I gave some commentary about it, but I would encourage you to kind of give that some thought because there's a lot of stuff that isn't explained, but it's there for a reason. And allow the Holy Spirit, kind of like a little spiritual exercise you can do. Pray, Lord, renew my mind. Help me to understand your word more deeply. Help me to understand you more deeply. Because the only way that we can understand God deeply is to be of one mind with him. And this is why it talks about, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Part of the renewing of our mind is to have the Holy Spirit within us, to have the mind of Christ. To think like him, to have the desires that he has. And you say, that's crazy. How can we do that? We can't on our own. But with the Spirit of God, we can. What an amazing thing it would be if everyone who claimed to be a Christian in the world, regardless of their different traditions, backgrounds, Orthodox, Catholic, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever, what an amazing thing it would be if every single one of those people truly submitted themselves to death, to self, and to life in Christ and had the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And just the amazing gift. You, know, you gave us the gift of, of course, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ, and without whom we wouldn't even have the Bible. But then you give us this Bible, which there's so much in it, so much that's more than what we think we know. And, uh, and Lord, just uh, we pray that you would help us to understand this idea of new. Because that is what you came. You, you came as a newborn. You died on the cross. You rose resurrected. There was a new kind of way that you were in your resurrected form. And through you, we have the possibility of living new life. A life that's made new now. But a life that will be made more completely new. When we are finally in your presence again. In the presence of he who makes all things new. Where tears will pass away and you will be in our presence. Help us, Lord, to be a people that don't just kind of put the veneer of faith over our corrupt self, but help us to truly live as guided by your Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.